a lot of the programs and a lot of the um, rehabs that we've seen done are going to a much more energy efficient approach than they would have if this program didn't exist. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey everybody, Sarah Larby here. You are listening to Where Should I Invest? And today's guest is David G. And David Guistizia is a real estate investor, also a mortgage broker. Um, we talk actually a lot about the MLI Select program with CMHC, his investments, uh, and a lot of other stuff in between. So um, on that note, uh, if you are looking for events and upcoming uh, networking opportunities, there are going to be a few that we are hosting. So there is an open house at Inspire Beach Resort that's in the Kawarthas in Ontario, May 7th from 11 to 4. So register for that at inspirebeachresort.com. We are also doing another roundtable event at Hagerty's Garage and Social Club, which is a private social club that I have joined recently. It is awesome. Uh, and we are hosting some events there that is in Burlington. So May 24th in the evening, we're actually going to be covering how to create cash flow and income beyond just real estate investing. Because many people here, cash flow is not what it used to be. And so what are some avenues and some ways that you can pivot to get and gain and regain the income that you might have lost as the rates have increased? Additionally, we are hosting a golf tournament and networking. And guys, if you don't know how to play golf, don't worry. This is networking and fun. Um, you do not have to be a pro golfer. I definitely am not. And that is going to be June 12th. So if you are interested in those events, midtermrentalproperties.com is hosting the Hagerty's event and the golf events. And Inspire Beach Resort is also coming up with different retreats and all that good stuff. So check that out. Um, but before we get into our podcast with David G, let's hear from Dahlia Barsoom at Streetwise Mortgages on this week's tip of the week. Dahlia, over to you. Hi, I'm Dahlia, founder of Streetwise Mortgages. If you're currently feeling overwhelmed by the uncertainty in the real estate market and the sheer volume and pace of news relating to the lending, the credit, and the real estate landscape, I want you to know that you are not alone. I'm reaching out today to help you mute down the noise and also share with you a few key things that you need to be aware of heading into the next 12 months. This way, you can make an informed, not an emotional decision with respect to rates. If you are planning on purchasing a property, and uh, we're currently definitely seeing momentum on that front, or refinancing, or if you have a renewal coming up. First, let me paint a picture of the backdrop of the rate environment. Number one, the Bank of Canada signaled holding off any further increases to the overnight rate, and it did confirm its position by not raising the rates during the last Bank of Canada meeting. Inflation is easing up based on the CPI trends, although the labor market remains tight. Also, the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and the Credit Suisse in the U.S., has created extra uncertainty about the stability of the financial system in the U.S. and overall global concerns relating to bank liquidity. So with this backdrop, the rate hike cycle in Canada appears to have finally ended. And I know this is 
comforting for many. And currently, the market is expecting that the next move by the Bank of Canada to be a rate cut, likely in Q2 of 2024 and potentially sooner. Having said that, no one really knows the exact timing, but what we know is that a rate cut is now on the horizon. Cuts typically happen gradually to bring prime rate down, and they happen over time. And what's expected is that the cuts will eventually bring prime rate down by 100 to 200 points. Um, we will unlikely see prime go back to what it used to be before the pandemic, unless something significant uh, happens and triggers that. Also, fixed rates have dropped over the past few weeks as the bond markets uh, reacted to the uncertain credit environment. Right now, there is something really funky going on with rates. If you look up the fixed rate mortgages, you'll see that the one and the two and the three and the four and the five-year fixed terms are lower than where the five-year variable rate is currently. And the longer the term goes, the lower the fixed rate is. So that's an interesting uh, observation. Also, the banking regulators in both Canada and the U.S. are proposing changes that will result in tighter lending overall. So what does all of this really mean to you? Number one, given that a cut by the Bank of Canada is now on the horizon, I invite you to consider riding the, the rate roller coaster as it goes down, as this will save you interest and will help your cash flow. So how do you do that? Here is how you do it. If you're currently on an adjustable rate mortgage, as much as it's been painful for you to stay with an adjustable rate mortgage because your payments have gone up significantly as the Bank of Canada increased the overnight rate, sticking with your adjustable rate mortgage means that your monthly payment will go down immediately as soon as the Bank of Canada starts to cut down the over nitrates. And it will continue to do so every time the Bank of Canada cuts the overnight rate. If you're currently on a variable rate mortgage where the payment is fixed, but the allocation beneath the surface changes between interest and principal payments as the rates change, you will need to check your lender's policy because there is no guarantee that your monthly payment will go down as the rates go down. So if you want your payment to go down, uh, consider switching to an adjustable rate mortgage. And definitely, in my view, I wouldn't suggest that you get into a variable rate product with a fixed payment right now because you're going to lack that payment at the height of the cycle unless the lender's policy says that they will adjust the payment as the rates go down. If you're going to make a new rate decision because of a renewal, a purchase, or an equity takeout, you may be tempted right now to take a long-term fixed rate mortgage because the rates are lower and they are also cheaper in the long term. And while that may serve you well in the short run, it will hinder your ability to benefit from lower payments when the rate starts to come down. So consider a one-year fixed or a variable rate mortgage. Now, 
although I'm sharing with you the overall rate strategy, your final rate decision should be within the context of your financial situation and your personal plans, as well as the plans that you have for the property. This is why it is really important that you consult with a mortgage advisor to assess the suitability of the mortgage product and the term based on your individual plans and circumstances. Number two, with the title lending guidelines on the horizon, consider increasing liquidity and restructuring any expensive debts that you may have. You can increase liquidity by setting up a secured line of credit or increasing an existing one that you have. Also, restructuring debts now will help you enhance how your balance sheet would look like for any future financing that is needed under tighter guidelines. My team and myself are here to help you. We are here to help you make the right and most informed rate decision as you move forward. We're just an email away. Email us at info at streetwisemortgages.com. We are here to support your success and help you move forward with certainty in this uncertain environment. Awesome. Thanks so much. And guys, enjoy this podcast. And don't forget to rate and review and leave your comments if you enjoy these podcasts or if you have any questions, reach out to me, sarah at sarahlarby.com. David, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. How are you? Good, good. I'm excited to have you. I think, um, you know, a few years, well, many years back, you came on and you like you came on as a mortgage broker at some point. You also came on as my prior bookkeeper as well, I believe, yeah. uh, which is what you were doing back in the day. So, you know, for those of you that, that or those listeners that may not uh, have heard of you, you, you're the David G that everybody speaks to, but maybe just give us a little bit of a background on who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is David Justuzia. Um, myself and, and my partner, Sue, run two mortgage teams. Uh, so we have our Vision Mortgage Group, which is our residential team, um, helping everything from first-time buyers right up to larger investors work with residential financing and help kind of create their vision, understand where they want to take the portfolio and figure out the execution strategy that allowed them to do it. And then uh, more recently, over the last uh, bit over a year now, we launched Vision Capital Partners, and that is our commercial division, um, predominantly focused on multifamily rehabilitation. So taking older underperforming buildings and using TLC, uh, turning them around, stabilizing the incomes and, and you know, refinancing, um, a little bit of land development this year. So working on, you know, property and, and ground up builds, um, Probably our bread and butter. We do dabble in office and industrial and a few other asset classes here and there, but uh, really multifamily is kind of our, our optimization space. And, and again, just same strategy, helping investors kind of set that vision, understand what's attainable, understand kind of the highest and best use and how they can approach a property and a project to really get the most out of it. Awesome. Awesome. So you, you dabble in everything, you know, and it sounds like you're, you're really focused on some of the bigger, bigger ticket items, right? Multifamily uh, onwards. So. Um, there's obviously, you know, a lot of investors, I think right now that are kind of just sitting on the sidelines, trying to figure out what the next move is, but what are you seeing that works well? Like you're probably still getting a few, a few opportunities come your way. Like what deals, uh, and maybe strategies seem to be working in 2023. Yeah. I mean, great question. We've actually been really, so on the 
investor side, I'm a fairly passionate investor myself as well. We've actually been super active through the tail end of, of 22 and 23. Um, in terms of strategies, we've, we've divested a pretty significant portion of our, I'll say smaller residential holdings, so single family, duplex, front flex. Um, the numbers on those are just, they're, they're getting kind of strange. Fair rates have gone. Uh, some of the triplexes and fourplexes do still work, but not in the way that they used to uh, at the current value. And especially, you know, for those that are looking to strip equity or, or gain additional leverage, as soon as you do that, you're paying the new rates, you're at 75, 80% of the value. That cash flow is really getting squeezed, if not negative, and, uh, and turned our attention mostly to buildings. Um, and so with, with buildings, our focus is really on rehabilitation projects. It's on stuff that is uh, usually older, 60s, 70s, 80s builds, stuff that just um, see a lot of like absentee landlords, people that just kind of do the absolute bare minimum, haven't put any effort into the building, uh, just kind of keep it as a going concern. And those buildings are typically really ripe for opportunity, um, you know, gaining some energy efficiency. Uh, awards and, and points through the MLI Slack program, so we can refinance really effectively. Um, and and we've seen a lot of lift in those categories. Uh, we had a project that we bought and sold during 2022, and we, we actually bought it at the peak, sold it at what now seems to have probably been the bottom around November, December, and still did quite well on it. Our newest project that we closed in December has been going really great. So it's really those economies of scale, like getting into that 8, 10, 12 plus unit um, it is a little more capital intensive, but we found the ability to get your capital back a lot stronger. The ROI is a lot stronger. The whole project just, they, they tend to make a lot more sense now. There's some tremendous deals out there. Now, when you're saying you bought, or like we bought, is that you included or are you helping an investor or are you also like these are part of your projects? So both. I mean, I typically do like shoot three a year. Um, we usually keep it. I mean, the, the mortgage side and our mortgage operation keeps me fairly busy, so I can't be as, as active as, as yourself and, and some others. Um, but I do still really like, you know, doing those projects. So we do try and do about like two to three year. I got um, some we do solo, some we do with JV partners. I, I got just a handful of small partners that we work with and, and, and do work together on. Um, but also for clients, like same kind of idea. I mean, one of the nice parts about being in the mortgage space and, and the space a lot of time with investors on both the residential and commercial side is we just get to see so much, right? I get to look at other people's deals, look at other people's rent rolls, look at the cap rates that they're acquiring at, um, you know, look at the finished products, how long it's taking the renovations, how much they're costing, are they coming in over budget, under budget? Like it really, you get a really strong sense of what's happening through the industry. And I think one of the big themes for the tail end of 22 and early 23 is that um, there's a lot of really good quality buildings out there that are trading at prices that would have just been like unheard of what we two months ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, there's really some great deals to be had for people who are looking carefully. Nice. So are you like, are, like, what about you as an investor? Like, are you currently still actively looking? Are you pausing? Cause you know, are you, are you just looking at, you know, stuff that you can exit with the MLI select program? I know you like that one quite a bit. Um, What's yeah, so we, our most recent one we closed in December. So we're kind of just at the entry stages of that project. Um, that won't actually be an MLI exit. Um, we're, we're still looking. I actually had another offer going today on something like way out of left field, not multi-family. I don't share too much because there's not very many of them on the market, but mm -hmm. um, 
something super weird. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, still really aggressively looking right now. I think um, this this drop in rate, um, you know, going back a couple, like a month and a bit ago now, like with the failures of, of SVB and a couple of the other banks, credit Suisse takeover, like the bond yields have just really dropped significantly. And that's largely played into residential rates, but it plays into commercial rates even more. Um, and so, you know, stabilized financing, even product financing, um, we've been seeing better opportunities, better pricing, and uh, yeah, still really aggressively out there hunting deals and, and finding opportunity. Um, we've removed most of the weight we're putting on MLI right now. Um, and not going to talk about it too much. I'm sure you've had lots of MLI discussions on this podcast over the past 12 months, but um, our, our anticipation is that that program isn't necessarily going to be around in these current form very much longer. And so um for our models and our performance we're kind of running it under the average like standard cmc program if push comes to shove at the end and we're actually able to use the MLI product phenomenal that'll be icing on the cake um but for us we need to make sure at this point that any kind of projects that we're getting into at this point are they still work if that doesn't exist by the time we're ready to refi i mean it's a fairly new program i love that program let's let's hope that it's still available um, but I guess you still have to run your numbers as a worst case scenario if you just exit with CMHC regularly. Yeah, there's been a lot of changes to CMHC in the last 12 months. There's been a lot of discussions. Uh, I think there's aspects of the program and, and like any new kind of government policy like this, we typically get into like a little bit of a review period, right? They launch something, they kind of have an intention of how it's going to play out about a year in. They're going to look at it and recognize that maybe there's certain aspects of it that aren't playing out the way it was anticipated. And I think for us, in the discussions we've been having with our lenders, with our CMHC correspondents, like the biggest piece that we're seeing here is this like retrofit energy efficiency thing. Um, not really doing, I, I don't want to use the word being abused, but it's being very heavily relied upon. And there's a lot of MLI product that's being issued in the marketplace that has no aspect of affordability, which I think was the kind of most pressing component of the program that, that seems she was really after. And so this idea that you can, you know, retrofit a building, bring the energy efficiency 40% above the baseline, which for some of these old buildings is like a really low baseline. Um, so with some of the different pool allocations and funding allocations, like we're already seeing a rates differential. So lenders that'll have a much better rate for MLI that contains an affordability metric than MLI that doesn't. And I think at some point we will see, uh, I don't know, I don't think it's likely the whole thing is going to be abolished, but I think we'll likely see some changes to it. Um, and CMHC trying to pull it in a little bit closer to what they had in mind when they launched it. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, just want to take a moment and introduce you to one of my favorite paralegals, Andrew Chubetta. With over a combined decade of experience, Caveat LLP provides legal assistance for real estate investors and entrepreneurs, primarily practicing in the areas of landlord and tenant law. Caveat LLP is your one-stop shop when dealing with all of your tenant issues. Give them a call for a free consultation at 289-339-1311. That is Caveat LLP. Andrew Chubetta has been instrumental in helping me as a landlord and as a real estate investor, and I'm sure he can help you as well. Again, that's 289-339-1311. And now back to the show. I mean, I guess the issue is, you know, in some markets such as Ontario, 
um, with the fact that you've got to keep some of these uh, low rents low for, was it 10 years? Um, 10 years, yeah. Is likely not the best course for many investors because the other issue, even if you're like, hey, I want to like, you know, take a few units based on, what, you know, if you're a brand new building or you're retro or whatnot. Um, and then there's that um, threshold that you have to be below, right? So maybe you can go through that, but but you also have to keep it low for a certain amount of time. And the other issue that I have with this, and this is sometimes, you know, when they come up with these uh, ideas and they try to implement them, like the debt coverage ratio may or may not even work. So like if you're trying to get these points so that you can exit the best option using the low rent option, and I shouldn't call it low rent, but you know, it, it's, it is. <laughs> That's what it is. Affordability metrics. Affordability, yeah. exactly. It's not always in our best interest because you may not be able to exit based on the NOI. So maybe just get, go into that piece a little bit. I know that, like you said, that's what CMHC originally wanted to, to do is create more affordable housing. But as investors and business owners and in certain markets, it doesn't always make sense to go that route. Yeah, so I think, so I, I guess the way that I can best describe the program is it's really broken down into, well, two, two tranches of three segments. So... Um, the scoring system is based on three metrics. It's based on energy efficiency, it's based on affordability, and it's based on accessibility. Um, for a lot of buildings, accessibility is top on a retrofit. Like if it wasn't already designed accessible, doing that mm -hmm. conversion is largely like not an option in a lot of cases. There are some select yeah. cases where it is, but and it's very yeah. and it's very costly. And I think it's just like what a thirty point max that you could do, and then the threshold between yeah, you know, get like fifty points as an example, and like you know. 30 more is not that big of a difference. In it's not something we've seen the focus on. Right. Yeah, I think for the new builds, that's making more sense because the the incremental cost on that is not what it is on the retrofits, right? So if you're designing yeah, the building from scratch, it, it's depending on, again, the, the original design, mm -hmm. it's not that big of a deal, but we're not seeing, I've actually seen no utilization of it um, in the retrofit. Um, energy efficiency, which is like 30 points for 15% reduction, 50 points for 25 and hundred points for 40%. So if that means that with the three MLI tiers and hundred points being get to the, the top tier, somebody could arguably get to the top tier of the MLI program just by doing a 40% energy reduction, nothing else. And that's what we're seeing a lot of when being on. That's what we're, we're trying to do as well. That's what everybody's trying to honest. do, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. So I think. Like the, what I'm seeing with that is, although it is like, it is great, it is a lot of the programs and a lot of the, um, rehabs that we've seen done are going to a much more energy efficient approach than they would have if this program didn't exist. Right. So, um, we're seeing movement towards like heat pumps. We're seeing movement towards high efficiency. We're seeing people, you know, beef up insulation, low flow on, on shower water utilization. Like there's a lot of really good things that's come from this program mm -hmm. in terms of these people spending another 20, 30% CapEx on these retrofit program projects. Um, at the same time, is it worth it for CMHC to knock 83% off their insurance premium to have people do that? Probably not. So, um. You know, nothing's official has been released yet. I, I think, yeah, I'll, I'll start by being pretty clear on that. But one of the things that I could see potentially happening is that they attribute less points in those energy efficiency reductions. Um, I could see them clawing back and saying, look, just because you do 40% energy efficiency doesn't mean we're going to give you the whole 100 points. If you want 100 points, it might be a combo of that plus some affordability or that plus something else. Um, so I think that's been 
you know, that's been the, the piece of the program that's been, I guess I'll say, abused. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one is the affordable rents. And the thing that's kind of odd, I'll say, is on the affordable rents, in the, uh, they, they kind of class into two tiers. So there's one segment of metrics if you're retrofitting. There's a separate segment if you're new build. And the new build segment is far more generous. Right. So on the retrofit, if you want a hundred points, you have to keep 80% of your units as affordable. That's a huge hit to the NOI. Like that's not attainable for where most people have their leverage to be able to do that and, and put a 10 year commitment on that. And um, that 10 year commitment is really where it's also, it's also hard to justify as well. Yeah, it, it is. And, but if you go down to the new development for that same, like, for that same 100 points, you're only looking at 25% of your units, right? For 70 points, you're only looking at 15% of your units. And for 50 points, you're only 10% of your units. So on a new development, you did like 10% of your units affordable and a 25% better than building code energy efficiency, you'd get your whole 100 points. And that that's a lot more, uh, a lot easier to stomach and a lot easier to still make financing work. And I think that's part of the problem we've seen on the, on the affordability side is the program's really reasonable when it comes to how they treat new builds. Mm-hmm. When it comes to how they treat existing buildings, it's a lot less juicy. And the energy efficiency is actually in reverse. Because on energy efficiency on a new build, the reduction is against building code. On a retrofit, it's against the existing structure. And so a lot of these structures that are 40, 50, 60 years old are actually in much worse shape than standard building code, right? So what it takes to get them, you know, 40% more energy efficient than where they are today. And as in many cases, it seems to the extent where you didn't even have to do anything with HVAC to accomplish something, um, which is like kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Um, and then the but... affordability too, just to go back. So like if you're doing something that's fairly new, let's just say you're, you're doing the 15 or 25%, that could be your smallest of the small bachelor units, right? right? And then so like, how do they measure the efficiency? It's a percentage below the average rent by the area. Is that how it was? Or you might know better. So it's 30% of median rent for income is what's deemed affordable. And again, this is really interesting because it, it affects differently in different markets, right? So if you look at somewhere like Hamilton or Toronto, um, those rents are drastically below market. Right. So where you have to cap those rents to fit that affordability metric is you know, in, in any case of less than half a market rent. If you go to some other areas, um, Northern Ontario, some areas of West, those are actually like on par with market, sometimes above market. Right. And so in some of those areas, it actually makes a ton of sense to do it because if somebody said, okay, well, we're going to cap your rents at 120% of your market rents, that's not much of a concession. Right. It's, you know, that's, that's nothing. Um, but it's really in these kind of high density, high rent areas where that really creates a big challenge. And so, you know, where I think they're targeting on the existing buildings is really these, I'll almost say like these absentee landlords, right? Like these, maybe absentee is the wrong word, but landlords that just don't have an interest in like optimizing their asset. You know, you have these people that are sitting on apartment buildings, um, you know, one of the ones we bought traded in, it was 11 units that traded for $300,000 back in the early 2000s, right? People don't have a mortgage or maybe they have like a couple hundred grand. They're just sitting on an asset. Like the rents are all low. They don't really care about moving them. They're happy with the tenants they have. This is where you can go to these older existing owners and say, look, like 
there's an opportunity here to extend your amortization, increasing cash flow, give you, you know, we're seeing sub four rates on, on CMHC funding right now. Um, get back to some of these, you know, great and great boring products. And all you have to do is commit that you're going to do what you've been doing for the last 20 years for the next 10. Um, and so I think that's where that program is being leveraged a little bit, but for investors that are looking for that rehabilitation, who need the higher levels of leverage or, or striving for that, you know, 75, 80, 85, 90, 95% loan to value. As soon as you start making concessions on affordability, mm -hmm. that operating income just is not going to be where it needs to be to give you the level of takeout that you need. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge for, um, I'll call it like more retail investors, right? So like stepping away from, let's say the REITs or the funds or the big GPLPs that are putting 30, 40, 50% down, going into like the smaller investors who want to try and do this with, you know, 25, 30% capital. Um, it's been really challenging for them to make use of that program. So what I'd love to see what I think would make sense from, you know, CMAC standpoint, they're kind of, um, I mean, look, I really don't want them to change the energy efficiency thing. It's awesome. And, and if we can keep that as is, I think everybody would be happy, but if they are really looking to do that, I'd like, I'd love to see a world where if they do kind of claw back on the points that they're giving there, I'd love to see them be a little bit more lenient on their affordability metrics for retrofit and, and existing properties. Um, cause I think they would get a lot more uptake if they could pull some of those numbers down a little bit. And, uh, and it would be much more attractive, you know, when we're talking about doing 10 or 20% of units instead of 80% of your units. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Experience Inspire Beach Resort. It is the resort that we have been building and it is ready. So if you are looking to host events, team building opportunities, retreats of your own, and just even potentially hang out with your friends or family or colleagues, you can rent out a cabin, you can rent out the entire resort. Inspire Beach Resort, it is an adults only, it is Canada's only themed resort specifically for adults and the themes are really nice they're really upscale like you have like the beach theme you've got a rustic lodge theme and a vintage hollywood and we are adding more every year but there is uh, an awesome space that is on the water to host your retreats your events your business meetings planning meetings all of that good stuff so check that out inspirebeachresorts.com now back to the show yeah no i think like they need to have these discussions with mortgage brokers with real like real estate investors and people that are in the industry because they're creating these programs, but they're not realizing that like there are going to be parts that we are not going to want to do because it's set up for us to not be able to pull out 95% loan to value if we even get the points as an example, because the NOI is not high enough. So, you know, and again, and, and the tenure thing is also an issue, but, and, you know, like, and I think they check, right. They like, you need to give them an update or something every single year. So it's not like you could just. Yeah. All the, I mean, if you don't, you, you go into default, like all of the CMHC insured lenders, you have annual reporting requirements, all of that. But yeah, and, it, and you actually have to freeze on the tenure thing. Like it's for the particular unit. So, you know, I've had questions come to me like, hey, well, I have this whole building that's like under rented. If we just arbitrarily pick, like, let's say we're trying to go for the 60% threshold. So we pick these 60% of our units. Let's say we have 10 units, we pick these six and say, okay, these are going to be the affordable ones. If you have somebody in those units that naturally turn over, you can't just treat one of your other units that's affordable anyway as the affordable unit. Like it's tied to the specific unit. Right. Uh, so it is like fairly inflexible in that way. And do it's they... not just about keeping the overall affordability on the building. 
do they have a say on like who you run to? Like, could it be your friends, the friends and family? They don't. They don't. You, no, they don't have a say on who you run to, um, which is great. And I mean, if you want to buy a building and create like a party house with with all your friends, it's not a bad choice. Uh, might make living in like some of these areas a little bit more affordable. If you start getting like groups of like twenty people together and go buy this twenty unit apartment building, and everybody rents. But um, yeah, it's just it's kind of inflexible. It's just not practical. Right. So for, you know, an active real estate investor, like you're never going to sit there and say, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to commit like 80 percent of my units being affordable. Um, it's just um, unless you've owned the building for decades, that's just not going to be a reasonable play when it comes to being able to you know, invest in real estate using some significant amount of leverage. Right. Right. So so for right now, it's it, there's nothing official that is changing. It's just nothing official. Just lots of chatter. Lots of chatter. Okay. Lots of chatter. Lots of lender comments. Um, but nothing official yet. Okay. So, I mean, thanks for going through the MLI. I don't think we've actually ever gone through it in that much detail so far yet. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, a good, good exercise. Yeah. So I, I guess I'll summarize the exit point, which is, I guess, the one thing we didn't really touch on, which is that uh, the conventional program allows up to 85% loan value. This theoretically allows 95, but an operating income has to be there. Um, conventional program requires 40 year amortization. This allows you to go up to 50. Regular program is 1.2 to 1.3 debt cover. This is only 1.1, so like potentially a higher advance rate. Um, and then the final thing, which is really awesome, is conventional program, the insurance premiums can be like four and a half, five, up to five and a quarter. The insurance premium on this at 95% loan value is only 1%. So your insurance premium could cut by as much as like 80 plus percent. Um, so it makes the CMHC funding in general one more affordable with better terms with a better advance rate and even from some lenders uh, more attractive interest rate so if somebody so, does want to go through that route though like do they need to let somebody know beforehand so that there's a whole process yeah it depends on um which channel they're looking to go through right so like when it comes to like affordability it's not really a big deal like when we do the submission if you say okay well i want to deem like these units affordable, we're going to use that affordability to get our coins. Like we just simply put that in the submission, not a big deal. Um, where I think we really kind of separate ourselves from, from a lot of the other brokers out there is like having the understanding of the energy efficiency side, right? So it's having investors that are buying the building, they're not going to CMHC yet. We're working with a project lender, credit unions, what have you, to do the acquisition, the construction. But at the time that we're doing that, we're going in, we're getting our energy audits, right? We're sending the auditors through saying, okay, let's do the building baseline. Here's mm -hmm. the renovation scope. You know, if we complete this scope, how much more energy efficient are we? How many points did that get us, right? And then they can say, well, that only brings you to 36. Okay, well, what else can we add to this to bring it to 40? Or, or you know, this brings you to 50. You don't have to go that far. You can scale it back a little bit. So going as we go through that rehabilitation construction process, way before we're going to CMHC, we're actually working with the auditors to make sure that when it's ready for CMHC, ducks are aligned, certificates are signed off. And it's just simply like a two-page that goes over to CMHC to say, Hey, the energy auditors have signed off that we've met this metric. Yeah. And I think that's important. Like we hired um, Evna Engineering as an example to to help us go through it and just make sure that like on the exit, we haven't missed any holes along the way or, or steps along the way. And I think it's just a lot easier to work with a company that's that's done it before. Right. And they've they've taken oh, uh, other you know buildings through that program because it's still very new and not a lot of people know how to do it successfully yet. Like what is it? A six month, eight month program so far? The MLI Select? Yeah, we're actually, we just said 12 months on it. Um, it's crazy, but yeah, it wouldn't have been that long. But yeah, it's just been out since last March. So, so it's still, it's still so new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Still so new. So, 
The other thing too, I think you gotta, you know, prep your your clients to be able to like exit and or bridge with a, a CMHC approved lender. Can you can you talk about that? Like, let's just say you've got a building that's decrepit. Uh, it's the stuff we love, and then uh, you know there is a process before you go to CMHC that you've got to consider. For sure, yeah. I mean, so CMHC is is really only used kind of at a point of stabilization, right? It's a long term debt solution. Um, you know, there are some nuances to how you could refinance midterm with a carry pass model and stuff, but it, it's not, it's kind of messy and I won't really get into that. It doesn't make sense for smaller projects anyways. So usually what happens is if you're acquiring something, you're using some sort of lender that's going to understand that the debt servicing in that building is not what you want it to be. Um, rents are probably too low, perhaps it's vacant and it has to go through some sort of transformation, right? So for us, um, a lot of people out there do it with private, which is totally fine. Right. It's very easy, just true equity lending. Um, I find that can be a bit expensive, number one. Number two, we have had a couple issues with, like, and this happens very rarely, but with CMHC, CMHC is usually pretty loose about not using an approved lender. As long as you can kind of show the intent, it was like, we didn't just own this and then leverage it and then come have you take it out. Like, we actually used the lender to buy it and acquire the property. But I've actually had situations last year where CMHC, we can show the whole paper trail of private use for the acquisition, like really clean cut in, and CMHC disallowed it as an approved lender. So because it wasn't an approved lender, they didn't have to recognize that most of the money that they were financing was going to a debt takeout. Mm-hmm. And what that meant was it actually had to go to an approved use. So let's say the mortgage was for, it wasn't, but let's just say it was for a million dollars and the private was 800000 if they had been recognized, CMHC would have said, okay, we're going to take 800 grand, pay off the debt. We're going to take 200 grand. You have to now use that for multifamily investment. In this case, they said, you have to take the whole million. And in the next couple of years, use that for multifamily investment. We're not going to uh, treat the private as a lender. So I prefer staying with project lenders. Um, got lots of great, I'd kind of call them akin to like the B lenders of the commercial space. So they understand the projects, they'll do interest only facilities for 12 or 18 months. You know, usually some sort of 70, 75% acquisition facility, maybe anywhere from 50 to let's see as high as hundred percent, depending on how juicy the project is of a construction facility. So they're coming in, they're basically your financing partner for the project. And so they're gonna help you acquire and renovate it. Um, and then they're going to later be taken out by CMAs. And so that's usually the type of strategy that we employ on these kind of rehab projects where to your point, we have this old dump that needs to be completely overhauled. Um, it's those type of lenders that are really the ones that kind of facilitate the ability to get that done at a, at a reasonable loan value, right? And without paying exorbitant interest in fees. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Cool. I can't believe we spent almost half an hour talking about CMHC MLI, but you know what? We dug we dug really really deep into it. So so here's what we're gonna do. The next part is the lightning round, but since you've already been on the show a couple times, I'm just going to make up the questions as we go, and I'll keep them related to financing. Well, Ready? All right, let's play. Uh, or or real estate, just because you're an investor too. Cool. And now just a quick pause to hear from the midterm rental tip of the week. Aisha, over to you. Welcome to your midterm tip of the week. Today we talk about what a midterm rental is. A midterm rental is a furnished property that is set up in a similar way to a short-term rental. However, this particular property caters to specific guests wanting to stay 30 days or more with a specific reason for renting and a predetermined start and end date to their visit. They can also be referred to as executive rentals, 
corporate rentals, medium-term rentals, month-to-month rentals, and extended stays. They are more hands-on than a long-term rental, but less intensive than a short-term rental. The cash flow is better than a long-term rental, but not as high as a short-term rental. They currently sit in a nice gray zone between the short-term bylaws and the Landlord-Tenant Board RTA rules. For more information on midterm rentals, please visit www.midtermrentalproperties.com. Awesome, guys. Reach out to midtermrentalproperties.com for additional information. Back to the show. Question number one, what is your current least favorite real estate investing strategy for 2023 onwards? You're going to hate me. Um, Airbnb. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Why? Airbnb. Um, for us, uh, we're seeing a lot of regulations pop up in a lot of cities that can be really, like, it can take a project that looks great on paper and 12 months later, city comes in and overhauls and it can just obliterate your opportunity. And the other thing that, that I find it really hard, maybe it's a bias because I'm on the mortgage side, uh, those portfolios are really hard to scale because the lenders don't like them. Um, so it's really hard for Google to come in and say, hey, I want like three or five cottages and we're going to Airbnb it. Really, really challenging as a broker to like find good rates, good loan to value solutions. A lot of people to cover those portfolios. Okay. All right. Cool. Number two, what is your favorite currents, favorite strategy for investing in 2023? Personally, building Um, So we do a lot of building repositioning where we're, um, Buying an asset, we're not taking it right to the end of the project, but we're kind of prepping it. Maybe that's like vacating it, maybe it's getting permits, maybe it's adjusting zoning, maybe it's getting contractor quotes, energy audits. And it's basically we're we're taking it to the point of being able to sell a project in a box for another investor to go run it across the finish line and we jump on the next deal. Okay. All right. Awesome. Question number three. There's lots of talks about investors selling, taking the money, getting out of the country, investing elsewhere. What are your thoughts on out-of-country investing? Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. Um, I think that's one of my big focuses for 2023 is to learn more. Um, I have a lot of people in my world that are moving towards investments in like the US, Caribbean, Central America. Um, I had to be pretty honest with myself this year and realize that I didn't spend enough time over the last couple of years kind of educating myself about the opportunity there. So I think that's a big focus for me is just to really understand what's going on in some of these other areas. and figure out what, what other people are doing, but I can certainly understand the sentiment with where prices and rates have gone. Okay. All right. Number four, are you seeing many defaults or are you still seeing that people are holding on and continuing to pay? Like what's, what's the fear in the market and what's the, like, what's the chaos that you're seeing in the back end that you could, that you're able to share? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Um, so what I would say is, is I am, I'm seeing more than it's, it's not necessarily more than I expected to see, but it's certainly more than we saw in 2021. What I would say from our client database is that it really comes down to the type of investor and the strategy that they employed. Um, so I've seen a lot of people who got into, let's say in over their heads, really, really high loan to value, really, really high cost privates, no super clear exit strategy, or maybe just one exit strategy, like, hey, we're going to go in and we're going to flip this, right? And then if you can't flip it, like, then what happens, right? Um, because they don't have the income to qualify for something else, found up equity in the property. I think the investors who are really prudent, who kind of went out with focused approaches, understood multiple exits, had reasonable lending terms, 
I'm seeing, I haven't had a single one of them default. All of the defaults I've seen were people that are levered at 80, 85, 90, 95% loan value with 10 to 15 to 20% interest rates. Um, that's where I'm seeing people really get, get stretched. Private lenders, there's a lot of them that um, investor money got a little scared. So we saw a lot of lenders that were traditionally would have no problem doing renewals, not wanting to renew. Right now they're, you know, they initially issued the mortgage at 70%. Now it's at 90% loan to value. It's up for renewal. They're saying, Hey, you know what? Sorry, we want out. Right. And so I'm seeing a lot of technical defaults. And so these are defaults where it's not necessarily that the borrower can't make them up the obligation, but it's that we've come to the end of the term. The lender said, Hey, we're not interested in renewing, but because of where the values have gone, there's not another lender to come in and take their place. And so it, it creates a very, very tricky situation to borrow because even if they can't afford the payments, they're kind of SOL. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's more of the rise I've seen as that type of situation. Interesting. All right. Last question. Question number five. As a real estate investor right now, where are you looking and where are you finding the deals? Are they on market or off market? Um, so the last two that we got were both on market. Uh, we got a couple off markets in the pipeline. Um, I still think it's a really good mix. I still think there's lots of on market opportunity. I know not everybody shares that sentiment. Um, but the one thing I'll say about on market, I mean, everybody knows there's lots of awesome off market deals. One thing yeah. I will say about on market is a lot of our clients have been on things that we were able to take a unique look at. We, we saw something, we saw an ability, we saw highest and best use in that property that not everybody else was seeing. And in a lot of cases, their properties have been sitting for months and months and months. Uh, the price points were very negotiable. You know, we were 10, 15, 20, 30% off of list price. And we were just able to kind of create a vision for it that, that other people weren't looking at. And so that's really been our big success with the on-market stuff lately. All right. Very cool. David G, thanks for being on the show. Where can my listeners reach out and find out more? Yeah. So uh, feel free to email uh, david at visionmortgagegroup.ca. Uh, we also just launched our social media this year, which is something we did not have last time I was on this. So we are at, uh, on Instagram, we're at, at Ask Vision Mortgages, um, and always happy for people to call and text uh, 289-981-2802. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. Great insights. And uh, thanks for dissecting the uh, CMHCMLI program with us. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Till next time. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larvey. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.